begin? Uh, today is Shankar. We continue to move through, I think, one of the most um, counterintuitive periods of philosophical history. So, well, first of all, I want to discuss, like, what is at stake for you? It's like, here you are, and, like, why bother learning about this? Uh, like, oh, come on in. What's being discussed here between the Buddhists and Shankar and a bunch of other people we'll talk about is that who are we ultimately? Like, when all the philosophical dust clears, like, who are you and where do you go? Do you go anywhere? Do you survive the death of your body? And if you do survive the death of your body, what happens to you? What's your real nature? If you want, like, who are you ultimately? Are you just part of, like, a corporate radiance? In other words, like there's some big impersonal Brahman and you're just, you just sort of merge into it. And your sense of being an individual, of having freedom, of being able to enter into relationships, to love and be loved, and just to be you, to be a unique, free individual, that's an illusion. That's an illusion. And when you become enlightened, you will completely renounce yourself. Renounce yourself as a free individual and just merge into something impersonal? Or is it the case, is it the case that actually you are eternally you? That that sense you have right now of being a person, a free individual soul, that's really you. And you can improve yourself, you can enlighten yourself, you can go on to bigger and better things in other worlds, but you really exist. So that's what's at stake here. Now, in the case of Shankara, he was accused even during his life. Well, you know about Shankara. You must have read about him. Eighth century, approximately. Some controversy. There's always some controversy about the dates, but approximately eighth century. Sort of a child prodigy. He only lived 32 years, and uh, he's primarily an exegete. He didn't so much claim to have an original philosophy. He claimed the opposite. He said, "I'm just helping everyone to understand what the Vedas really say." That's what he claimed to be doing. He wrote one book by him, uh, his own book, I think, Upadesha Sahasri or something, A Thousand Teachings. But, um, but basically, he writes commentaries. He writes commentaries. Remember the, uh, the Vedanta, the knowledge portion of the Vedic culture as opposed to the Karmakanda. It's the Upanishads, all these Upanishads, and then the Brahma Sutra, which is trying to sort out the Upanishads. And then the commentaries are trying to sort out the Brahma Sutra and then the Bhagavad Gita. And so Shankara wrote commentaries on all this stuff. And he claims that this is what it really means. And since this is divine authority, this is scripture, this is infallible, and I'm explaining what it really means, this is it. This is what life's about. So we're going to look at it. Uh, I wrote a few formulas up here. Uh, Shankara basically... Whoops. Not to close the quotes. I put this in quotes because this is from the Upanishads. We'll quote some of them. Atman, the self, or the soul, is Brahman, the absolute. And that's the big equation that everybody's trying to figure out. That here we are, individual souls, down here, planet Earth. And meanwhile, up there or everywhere, there's this absolute truth, Brahman, which creates the world, or which is the world, which, which is the infinite. And somehow we are that Brahman. So what does that mean? That we, individual, that we are the Absolute. What does that mean? And then, uh, of course, Brahman is everything. 
Brahman is everything. Uh, Shankar is a, an Advaita. Advaita is just Sanskrit, like duality. In other words, only one thing. There's only one thing that exists. There aren't two things in the universe or beyond the universe, anywhere. There's only one thing, and it's Brahman. So Brahman is everything, and we are that Brahman. And Brahman is indivisible. It has no parts. It has no parts. Therefore, like right now, there's a bunch of us in this room. That's an illusion. That's Maya. Somehow or other, we'll talk about that. And uh, anyway, that's a real head scratcher. So somehow or other, all this individuality and all this plurality, there's a bunch of us here in your body. You've got like arms and legs and there's walls and ceiling and a floor. That's all an illusion somehow. That is, uh, although as we'll find out, it's an illusion, but it's still there, but it's not really there. So we're still in this very murky realm of counterintuitive philosophies. Anyway, we're going to talk more about all this. And then, when you take Brahman plus Maya, when you take Brahman plus Maya, you get God in the world. Because all plurality is an illusion. Because Brahman is one. There's only one indivisible reality. So God and a soul. That's nice for the time being. I mean, you can kind of... It's like a child, you know, you tell a child all kinds of stories. Remember the Buddhist thing? The Upaya uh, Koshelya, skill and means, that you just sort of tell a story to get people going, but ultimately you come to the real truth. So the real truth is that God and the world, God and souls, that's just Brahman seen through this covering, this haze, this deluding magical potency of Maya. So when you're enlightened, that's all going to vanish. This sense you have, this false idea that we're actually individuals and that I'm different from you and you're different from the chair you're sitting on and etc. etc. So, therefore the soul this little philosophical therefore mark the soul is everything. So you, because you're Atman, you're a living conscious thing, therefore you are everything. That thing like, you know, I am God, you are God, and I am you, and you are me, and we are all together. See how they run? So, anyway, these are all, these are sort of a bunch of formulas to give you, very briefly, Shankar's philosophy. Shankar was accused, even during his life, of being a crypto, sort of a hidden, sneaky, covered Buddhist. Because, why was Shankar accused of being a Buddhist? Well, uh, well, for one thing, his philosophy, like, say, Nagarjuna, is extremely counterintuitive. In other words, the world as you experience it, like, here I am, I'm in the world, I'm a person, you're a person, and here's a world with the sun and the moon and the sky and chairs and tables. That's somehow, when you're enlightened, none of that is really true. So, anyway, that's one thing that Shankar and the Buddhists had in common, this radical rejection of the ultimate reality of the world as we all experience it. And, uh, Individual souls, for example, don't really, don't really exist in the ultimate sense. They exist, but they don't exist. And so you're not really an individual soul. That's what Nagarjuna said, because ultimately your individuality is empty. It's just a bunch of emptiness. And when you see the emptiness, you realize you're not really an individual soul. Although you get to be an apparent individual soul forever, coming back to the Bodhisattva. So you can have your cake and eat it too. There's also no eternal God ultimately, that loves souls and souls love God, and there's a relationship with that God, that's out the window. 
Um, you get to keep it for some time when you're in a childish state. But once you're enlightened and ready for the major league stuff, the real stuff, that goes out the window. So there's no God. And um, so this thing, remember Nagarjun, the, the, that little four-point thing that Buddhists like to say that, uh, let's say the world doesn't exist, does not exist, doesn't exist and not exist, it doesn't neither exist nor not exist, all that. But of course, with a very special definition of existence, which means existing independently, which is not in the dictionary, but Nagarjun realized that's what the word really means. So, anyway, here's a quote. Well, well let me just go through my stuff here. There's a few points. I really want to get all this across today, if I can, uh, before the time runs out. Um, so here's a little quote from uh, the book by Professor Rodriguez. For many centuries, the renouncer traditions, the shramanas, and the word shramanas is, is, is way before the shramanas. I mean, it's before Buddhism. It's a word in the Vedas. For many centuries, the renouncer traditions, grounded in philosophical inquiry, have been dominated, dominated by heterodox <laughs> darshanas. Heterodox means not within the Vedic fold, particularly Buddhism. In other words, the Buddhists, the people that reject the Vedas, they're dominating philosophy. So, for example, let's say uh, a, a, a strong majority of Americans believe there's some kind of God, but let's say if you go to philosophy departments in America, you know, you can't really do that kind of stuff so much. So you have a situation where, even though India is basically a Hindu Vedic society, philosophy is being dominated by people who reject the Vedas. Now, Shankara's and also Hinduism had been, I don't know if this is pejorative, under the sway of bhakti approaches, under the sway. In other words, people that want to love a personal God, but uh, apparently weren't all that philosophical. So Shankara's Advaita, Advaita, no dualism, provided a darshan philosophy that blended some of the most appealing dimensions of Buddhism, such as monasticism. The Buddhists, right off the bat, they started this monastic thing going, and then Shankar started a type of Hindu monasticism, which is still going. And he included Buddhist philosophy with traditional Hinduism. So in other words, reinvigorating the latter, reinvigorating Hindu philosophy. Nirguna Brahman. Uh, that's a very important term. Brahman, you know, and uh, near, as in nirvana, means without, and guna means a quality, like, for example, being a person, or being male, or being female, or being so many years old, or being a certain size, or shape, or having red, or blue, or green hair, or whatever, or being strong, or being whatever. These are all qualities, guna. So near guna Brahman means that ultimately Brahman has no personal individual qualities. When you really see Brahman as it is, it has no attributes, no personal attributes, such as being a god. And then, of course, we'll find out Wednesday there was a, another philosophy, sa. Sa means with. It's the opposite of near. This is without. This is with. Saguna, Brahman. That actually, the absolute truth does have personal qualities. So, uh, Shankar, of course, has famously said, no, Nirguna Brahman is only... And so here, uh, Professor Rodriguez says, Nirguna Brahman is only marginally different from the Buddhist conception of emptiness. Shunyata, Nagarjuna. Only marginally different. And Shankara's concept of Ishwara, the Lord, Ishwara means the Lord, the word used in the Yoga Sutras, for example, Patanjali, it's just a common word for Lord. Uh, you see, so he's got all this good Buddhist stuff, all this slick philosophy in the monastic tradition, but he's got Ishwara. 
because there's a lot of Hindus out there that believe in God and want to worship God. So Shankar says, hey, we got the Buddha stuff and we got the God. It's like one-stop shopping and you have no good reason to go outside your religion, your Vedic religion. We got it all here. So, uh, so, and his concept of Ishwara allowed a place for Hinduism's bhakti, devotion to God, and karma-maric approaches. Karma-maric by karma-yoga, where you have a job in the world, but you offer the fruit of your work to God. The ever-malleable Hindu orthodoxy embraced these ideas. So, you know, hooray, we solved the problem. We've got all the stuff that Buddhism has, plus we have Ishwara, so we've got it all. And, uh, so let's start talking about this. Um, so as far as the, just one quick quote, like how, like, uh, Nagarjuna doesn't exist, does it not exist? Maya doesn't exist or not exist. This is a quote from Professor Rodriguez. Maya is not fully real, existent, but its illusions are grounded in ignorance of Brahman. In other words, you think you see a world out there, you think there's individuals, because you don't understand there's only one reality, which is Brahman. And these illusions of a world and individual soul, these illusions vanish with self-realization. But Maya's illusions are not fully unreal. So they're not real, but they're not unreal. This sounds very much like Nagarjuna. Since they have the power to cause us to feel and act, so if you bump your head against the wall, it hurts, so you can't just say it's unreal. Because if there really wasn't a wall there, you wouldn't have a big lump on your head. And everyone realized that. Even Nagarjuna had to brush his teeth in the morning. And Shankar, so I mean, there's really a world out there, but... So if this is kind of confusing, uh, congratulations. Because I think it is confusing. And I think there is something a little unnatural about this. And we're going to proceed with the history of Indian philosophy. And a bunch of people thought, wait a second. I mean, does, does philosophy really have to be this confusing? Bless you. Yes? I just watched um, a speech by Stephen Dawkins. Mm-hmm. About, um, uh, he was talking about um, our conception of what students can fathom and what they can't in our right, life right. on it. And I was talking about how atoms, our, our brain is, is specifically made to comprehend the world as it is, to think that this is solid when really it's just atoms and, and the distance between one atom and another would be a fly on the wall of a stadium versus a fly on the wall of another stadium is the distance between the atoms. So that's like the space so that they're is seriously nothing between it. Right. So it's the concept of that this is all nothing. We're all just adding. I would say to Dawkins that, um, just very quickly, because uh, time limitations, but I'll just say very quickly to Dawkins that his attack on teleology and phenomena, phenomenalism is actually misguided. For example, if you go to a museum and you see a, a, a great painting on the wall, and let's say, is it Dawkins? as a physicist, and not a philosopher, which you can tell if you read his book. Is it Dawkins the physicist, or is it, let's say, a chemist that studies paint, that studies oil paints, or is it the art historian that really understands? In other words, the artist painted the painting to, so that you would see it in a certain way. And so therefore, even though it may be a fact that ultimately it's just like, you know, all these atoms and all these wide open spaces, still, phenomenologically, phenomenon philosophy means the world as it appears to your senses. And so even though it may be technically a certain thing, still, in terms of the way it appears to us, it's a beautiful painting that has its own validity. 
And so I would say that uh, in order to understand art, I would rather talk to an art historian rather than a physicist. In the same way, if the universe turns out to be a work of art, if the universe is created to be perceived by conscious beings, then the technology behind it, in a sense, is a secondary understanding. For example, if you buy a computer and you're not into computer technology, you're just, like, you're just not into it. Then you want to turn on your computer and get a picture on the screen. And you want to be able to click on things and do things. And so therefore, even though there are computer, let's say, engineers that know all about the nitty-gritty stuff behind it, really what concerns me is that I get the right picture on the screen. That's what I want. That's what I want to work with. So in that sense, uh, to say that the nitty-gritty engineering behind the desk is the reality of it, is to deny that it's really made to be perceived in a certain macro way by conscious beings. So it kind of is begging the question, avoiding the whole question of teleology and theism. Yes? Are you going beyond um, the senses? Kind of, um, yeah, isn't, it, isn't that part of many of these philosophies anyway? So you be, by going beyond the senses, you would be able to see the world through that um, physicist standpoint, where this is not really solid because if you break it down to so it's not the right. or the fourth, it's really just empty anyway. Yeah. So going beyond the senses, you would be able to see it that way. So there's like a scientific... I have kind of a similar question to that. Yeah. I was thinking of time and answer. So, but um, I was thinking about, it seems like most Indian philosophies, maybe with the exception of Namsakas or something, um, propose that, that everything material is, in a sense, like temporary and, sh and we should kind of focus our attention on a reality that's totally separate from the chair and the desk and right, right. my hair color. Um, so, you know, how... Okay, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll address all these things. Definitely, like, going beyond the senses, that's definitely a common thing. As we'll see, even the theists, even those who accept a personal God, definitely want to go beyond the senses. Everybody wants to go beyond the senses. However, art, for example, is valid. In the sense that if, if you're an artist and you paint a picture, and I see it, and I understand what you meant, and there's, there's a communication of something profound, that's a real communication. And the fact that there's space between, let's say, the molecules of the, of the paint you used doesn't invalidate the fact that you successfully communicated something. Well, the way says that mind is real, but it really isn't. True. But then, okay, okay, that's a good point. So I'm not, how should I put it? it it's not so much saying that there's something beyond the senses, but if you see, if you as a person, I mean, I, mean, I accept that, I see what you're saying, and I accept that's valid. It's valid to say that the world as we see it is not just the world. There's something beyond that. What I think is controversial and what I'm objecting to in Nagarjuna and Shankara is saying that the world as it appears to us has absolutely no purpose. It's just ignorance. It is simply ignorance. It's like saying that if you go into a museum and see a great work of art on the wall, and okay, we know that from a physical point of view, or atomic point of view, there's a lot of space between it and everything. But still, when I look at a great work of art, that art is not just ignorance. It's not simply ignorance, and I have to transcend it to get to the real reality of art, which is just empty spaces between atoms or, or, or subatomic particles. And that's what the problem is. It's reducing reality and saying that when you get to the empty spaces, that's it. 
and the painting that you see on the wall, that great work of art, or the great music you listen to, that's just ignorance. That's just ignorance. It has no value. It's only something to just step over. Isn't it like you as a tool? You see something and you appreciate it, and then the next step is to go beyond it and understand it. But you see, I'm questioning the notion that you are going beyond it. If there's a great work of art, I'm questioning the notion that by ignoring what's on the canvas and thinking of spaces and some atomic particles, that you've gone beyond the art. Because you see, what about all kinds of metaphysical things, like justice, like beauty? What about beauty? If you look at a work of art and see beauty, do you want to go beyond the beauty to get to particles and spaces? Well, I'm not sure the particles and spaces are beyond beauty. I would, so, so in other words, it may be the opposite, that the particles and spaces are the instrument in order to facilitate the manifestation of beauty in the world, yeah. rather than the beauty being an instrument of particles and spaces. So if, the, if, that, if whatever's beyond the art is what's creating the art, yeah. essentially it is the art. It is the beauty being expressed through the material form. But then again, let's say, for example, you paint a picture for someone you love. Okay? So if you're a person and you're you create something for another person out of love, then that personal expression is the reality. It's not like if you, if, you, if you do something for someone you love and that loves you and you give it to them, so you paint a picture, and they look at it and say, well, never mind what you're trying to tell me, never mind you're trying to tell me you love me, never mind the beauty you tried to create for me. What's really interesting to me is something you didn't do at all. It's just the spaces between the particles and the particles themselves. <laughs> and so what it's doing is it's taking personal life personal consciousness, personal concerns, metaphysical concerns like beauty, justice, kindness, relationships, and subordinating those to physics. And, and therefore, and this really, it's good that you're asking, this gets to the whole point. When we get to the highest reality, is it personal? So that personal things are ultimately real and important, or do we ultimately transcend everything personal, destroy our own individuality, through meditation or philosophy, obliterate our relationships by merging into some impersonal consciousness. So I guess the point would be to get beyond this reality and to understand what, you know, how something so beautiful can be created or formed through something that we can't understand or conceive. True, and everyone agrees on that. All the Vedantas will agree that we have to go beyond ordinary material life. But, but the real crux of it is, when you get beyond it, are you an enlightened, loving person or an impersonal consciousness? So that, do you see the point? Yeah, that, well, I guess you would look at people who have gone there, and you look at the prophets and what they preach with love. So they're inherently connected to something, even though they have reached a higher level or something deeper beyond the senses and material. And, yeah, and they just greet each other. So, yeah, so maybe we'll go into, so I want to get some more of this done because we're going to see that saints and enlightened people are going to disagree with each other. And this is, it's good you all brought this up. This is precisely the point. Where do you really, what do you look like and who are you once you're enlightened? And what does the world look like? So I'm just going to try to get through more of this. The point that um, Brahman has no parts, because this is also the essence of it. You know, are we really individual persons or not? So Shankar's philosophy is radical because it proposes that Brahman is indivisible and thus cannot be partitioned into qualities, components, and so on. Brahman is nirguna, etc. One's innermost self is not a part of Brahman. 
because Brahman has no parts. It is Brahman, because Brahman is all there is. So, uh, let's talk about Maya, like illusion a little bit, and then I'm going to make a critique of Shankara, as you probably could have guessed. So Maya is illusion. Here's a quote about Maya. To the question, where does ignorance come from if everything is Brahman? In other words, if there's only one thing, there's no parts, how could there be knowledge and illusion? Why does, like, where does that come from? Aren't there two things then, knowledge and illusion? So this is a question that people ask. So to this, uh, Shankar replies that from the standpoint of knowledge, and you see things from knowledge, uh, there is no ignorance to ask the origin of. In other words, when you're in knowledge, there is no ignorance. But that, to me, it's like saying, okay, I didn't know how to drive when I was a kid, now I know how to drive, so therefore, when you know how to drive, there's no not knowing how to drive. Yeah, but I still didn't know how to drive once. And the question is, why didn't I know how to drive? Because the brain developed at a certain pace, because I didn't have those skills, because I lived in a certain culture, etc., etc., etc. So the question, where does ignorance come from, to say that when, when you have knowledge, there is no ignorance, but there's ignorance now, like all over the world. I mean, go out in the street, take a survey, and find out how many people in this county or anywhere else in the world are merged into Brahman. <laughs> you know, it's going to turn out that 99.9% of the, or more of people on this planet really are not in Brahman consciousness. And therefore, there's a whole bunch of ignorance down here. It's causing a lot of suffering, a lot of trouble. And I don't think we can say that people are suffering, but they're not really suffering. Yeah, they're really suffering. Didn't you give an example of this matrix? Yeah, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for keeping me on track here. In other words, let's say, for example, uh, I think that someone in my family, someone I love, has died. And therefore, I'm really suffering. And then I find out it's a false report. The point is, I still suffer. Even though I suffered out of ignorance, I still suffered, and I was really in ignorance. So there's still two things. There's the real fact that my loved one is actually safe, and there is my ignorance. I misunderstood it. So if there's only one thing Brahman, where does the ignorance come from? You still have to answer the question. And, uh, for example, so I've given enough examples. Now, here are some examples that Shankara gives, and I want to look at them and I want to make the argument these examples really collapse under scrutiny. They don't really answer the question. Uh, the tiger dream. You dream of a tiger, and you're afraid, and even your body is sweating and all that, and then you wake up and there's no tiger. And that's an example. You wake up from this dream that you're an individual soul in a world of souls, a world of variety. You wake up and realize there's no variety, there's no parts, and there's no you. It's just all Brahman. The problem with this example is that uh, why do we dream of tigers? We dream of tigers because there are real tigers in the world. In fact, if you'd never seen a real tiger, I'm sure you wouldn't dream of one. And so therefore, if we take this analogy seriously of the tiger, the reason you dream you're a person is because you are a real person. And other people are real persons. We just misunderstood them. For example, agreeing with Shankara and with Buddha and everybody, let's say you take the body as the self, but you're really not the body. You're really consciousness or soul or whatever philosophy we're in at the moment. So, but you're not your body. So I see you and I take your body to be you, but actually you're the self or the soul or the consciousness, the enlightened thing inside the body. 
So in the same way, I dream of a tiger. The tiger is not real there, not there in my dream, but there are real tigers. So if there aren't real persons, why would you dream of real persons? Again, applying the tiger dream analogy, you don't come up with Nirguna Brahma. It just confirms the plurality of the world. Uh, another uh, here's another quote. When one is free from the deluding power of Maya, one recognizes oneself as Brahman, liberated from Maya, Brahman's magical crea- creative power of Maya. My question is, how does Brahman delude Brahman? If there's only one thing which is Brahman, why is Brahman confusing itself? The example is given by Shankara that it's like a fire, the burning power of fire. But fire doesn't burn itself, it burns other things. And similarly, if there's a Brahman that's enlightened, that has this deluding power, why, how is it deluding itself? And if Brahman has no parts, if Brahman is not deluded, why, why are we deluded? Because how could like 17 Brahmans be deluded and 19 are not deluded and there's 23 in the middle? It's, bless you. In other words, as soon as one person is enlightened, why isn't everybody enlightened since everybody is just the same Brahman? And there are no parts. This is Shankar's point. There are no parts. And yet, this part is deluded, this part is half deluded, that part is three quarters enlightened, that part is fully enlightened, but there's no parts. There's no parts. So, why do we... And to me, it makes no sense. Frankly. And then we're told it's like a rope and a snake. That uh, you see a rope, a coiled rope, and you think it's a snake. You think it's a snake. Okay. Uh, but this illusion, this example, is based on the existence of two real things. There are real ropes in the world. And there are real snakes in the world. So when you see a rope and you think it's a snake, you are confusing two real things. Therefore, if we apply this analogy, if I see, let's say, plurality, and I think it's the highest truth, sure. I mean, that's what the point of something bringing up. Sure, if I look out at the physical world, I think this is it. This is the highest truth. No, there's something higher. But I'm confusing two real things. I'm confusing the world, which is real, with an eternal reality, which is higher, and something else. Now, Shankar himself, by the way, gave arguments against what he considered to be nihilism of certain Buddhist thinkers. And the Buddhists, of course, so for example, Nagarjuna said, I'm not a nihilist, I'm in the middle between nihilism, nothingism, and eternalism. But Buddha, I mean, sorry, Shankar apparently believed that some of the Buddhist thinkers were really tending toward nihilism, because Shunyata, when, you, when it all boils down, when you shake it all down, really is kind of like a nihilism. And so Shankar himself gave all kinds of arguments to prove the world's really here. But when you're enlightened, it's not here. That's what I was going to say. Like, yes. If you're enlightened, that doesn't mean that you're not physically here. So you have to have an interaction with something that's real. So like within that interaction, you're going to have those, that ignorance anyway because right. you have to interact with the real world. So right. how would... How would you know, but this doesn't make sense because if you're a Brahmin and you're enlightened, you're still a person. But he's saying that although you're a person, everything else around you isn't real. You're just one. But like you still have to interact with everything else that that that's around you. So that would make you ignorant. Yeah, <laughs> it is confusing. I, I think I think I mean honestly speaking, I think it is incoherent. I think it's actually ultimately incoherent. In fact, in one of our books, I have a little quote here, is that Maya is ultimately inexplicable. 
That's from our book. Uh, so the rope and the snake, two real things. So the rope and the snake doesn't give you a world that's not really here or a world that's not really plural. Those are two real things. Ropes and snakes are both real things. So I just want to, there's a few more things I want to get out because maybe it'll help you to be more confused or maybe you'll, maybe you'll see the light or something and explain it to me. So Shankar claims that he's not giving his own philosophy, he's just giving a real teaching. He's really explaining the Upanishads uh, or, or the Vedas. And so I want to argue that um, he's not. And many scholars believe he's not. He's actually giving really his own view. For example, he says, Brahman has no parts. Well, here's a quote from the Svetashvata Upanishad, the white mule Upanishad. That's what it means. The white mule Upanishad. That uh, know that you should understand that the physical world is Maya, and the Lord and, and the one who possesses Maya is not Brahman. That's what Shankar says. Brahman, Maya is just the energy of Brahman. The, the Vedas say that this Maya belongs to the to the Lord, to the Lord, the personal Lord. Whereas Shankar is going to say, and we're getting to this right now. That the Lord is another illusion. I mean, it's nice to worship God, even though it's an illusion. By this little formula, when you take Brahman and add Maya or illusion, what you get is God in the world. But the Upanishad said that that all living beings are parts of the Lord. So here we have the Vedas saying that there is a Lord, and the Lord has parts. Shankar accepts the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, he wrote a beautiful poem. In our book, it said that... Um, it should not be forgotten. Shankar was a theist. He was devoted to God. His, his uh, well, I'll read you a little bit of it. He says that, I'll just translate from the Sanskrit here, Gita Shastra Punya, that this holy Gita, one who studies it, will achieve the abode of the Lord. And that it will, it will liberate you from all your impurities. That uh, the essence of all the Vedas and Upanishads is this Bhagavad Gita. It is the one Shastra, the one scripture, and Krishna, who, who spoke it, it is the one Lord, etc., etc. And yet in the Gita, Krishna says that every living being is part of me. He uses the word Anksha, part. So the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the three scriptures Shankar accepts, explicitly says that souls are part of God. The Vedas and the Svetasvatar Upanishads say that all creatures are parts of the Lord who possesses Maya. So as far as Shankar, and uh, then there's these two quotes in, uh, in our little book here, uh, where uh, Sue, Sue Hamilton says, uh, to grasp Shankar's position, take these two quotes from Chandogya Upanishad, in the beginning this world was just being, in the world, in the beginning this world was just being, i.e. Brahman, one only without a second, and it thought to itself, let me become many, let me multiply myself. There's problems with this uh, in, in my uh, service to you. I went back and looked at the Sanskrit for this verse. And it doesn't exactly say this. So I'll tell you what, it, what the Sanskrit literally says in the Chandogya Upanishad. That in the beginning this world was just being, i.e. Brahman. I.e. Brahman is not in the Sanskrit. It doesn't say bracket, i.e. Brahman, close bracket. <laughs> and it just says in the beginning uh, this world was being, one only. 
and it thought to itself. It doesn't say it thought to itself. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what it really says. So, uh, okay. Uh, the Sanskrit word he found is this. It's just the neuter, neuter word this. And so at the beginning, there was this, and this was such, existing. But then it says that, not this, but that, tut. Uh, it thought, or it glanced, and it thought that I shall become many. Bahusyam. Now, here's the Sanskrit for I shall, I should, or I shall become many. It's bahu, which means many. And siam, which means I should become, or I shall become, or I will become. Now, first of all, what's interesting is that when it says, in the beginning there was only this world, that's word he done. But then the guy or the thing that's going to create is something else. It's tut. It's this and that. It's not even clear it's the same thing. In other words, in the beginning there was this, the world, and then that decided to make something of the world. So it's not even the same thing, but you don't get in the translation. These are actually different, neuter, demonstrative pronouns. Yes? Yeah, then, many. I should become any. By the way, the English word am is, is related to Sanskrit. So, first of all, many. It does not say in the Upanishads. It does not say that I'm going to become many because I want to create an illusion. This is going to be a delusion, an ignorance of Maya. It doesn't say that. It just says that there should be many. It doesn't say that this is going to be false or unreal. And siam is, is the uh, verb, I. It's a personal thing. We're not talking about an impersonal Brahman. We're talking about a person saying, I shall become many. And those many are not an illusion. Prajayaya, I shall procreate. Now, another thing that's interesting is that the same verse is given not only in the Chandogya Upanishad, where it's quoted here, but also in the Taitariya Upanishad, and it goes on to explain it more. Another ancient Upanishad, pre-Buddhist, which says that in order to have the power, or in order to actually create, that who's ever talking here, the creator, to both tatwa, performed austerities. Now what's interesting is that throughout the Vedic literature, and, and even in Buddhist literature, you perform austerities when you want to get power, when you want to purify yourself, just like Buddha tried performing austerities at one point. And even in, in Buddha... Buddhist monasticism, they perform all kinds of austerities. If this is God, if this is the already perfect, all-knowing Brahman, why is it undergoing some discipline to get the moxie to create the universe? And actually what we find in other Vedic literature, Puranas and so on, is that actually the creator Brahma. It's not even the supreme God at all. It's the creator Brahma or Prajapati that did this and performed the austerities. So if you look literally at the Sanskrit, it's not at all clear we're even talking about God or Brahman. It's not at all clear that the original one existing thing is the Brahman, as opposed to the world. It's not at all clear that the plurality of beings that are going to manifest, that that's an illusion. It's not at all clear that there's an impersonal Brahman speaking, because impersonal things don't talk anyway. So... Again, Shankara's interpretation of the Upanishads is really his own philosophy uh, based on the Upanishads. And, 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 I mean, I could go on for many, many days and nights giving you more examples of problems in terms of the correspondence between what Shankara is saying and what's actually the Upanishads. And then the next statement, which tells you, uh, which is given here, which I'll try to cover very briefly, which also has problems, by means of just one lump of clay, everything made of clay can be known. 
Any modifications are merely verbal distinctions, names, realities, just clay. In other words, you take a bunch of clay, make a, a clay pot, a clay dish, a clay spoon, a clay air conditioner, whatever. The point is that it's just clay. You call it a pot, a dish, a spoon, but it's really just clay. Yeah, in one sense it's just clay, but a spoon and a pot are really not the same thing. And if you want to cook, you're not going to cook in a spoon, you're going to cook in a pot. And so the substance may be the same. For example, the, the Sanskrit for this verse says that if you, know, if you know this, then you know everything made of clay. But even Shankar in his commentary, I actually looked up Shankar's Sanskrit commentary on this, Shankar says what we're really talking about here is the vastu. The vastu means the substance. So if you have a clay pot and a clay cup and a clay dish, what you really know, if they're all clay, you know clay, that they're all the same substance. But to know a dish is not to know a pot. To know a pot is not to know a spoon. There is further useful, practical information that you don't know just by knowing it's clay. Like if I come in here and I say, I made this really beautiful thing out of clay, and you say, well, what is it? Well, never mind, it's just clay. That's all you need to know about it. <laughs> well, no, not really. I really want to know more about it. So in the same way, and this gets to the point we were discussing before, what we're going to find in Ramanuja, Wednesday, is that, yeah, we're all the same substance, we're all the same vastu, and that's what Shankar says in his commentary. We're all the same substance. However, so in that sense, we know a lot about each other, but your unique individuality also matters. So it's not that you really know everything just by knowing a bunch of things are made of clay. It's also important to know what the things are. So it's not... So, so I want to get to the last point, because there's only a few minutes left, and it's really important uh, that what both authors, actually, in both the books you were supposed to read, said is that, hey, this is not a problem for theism because Shankar accepts an Ishwara, a god. And so you still get God, so what's the problem? You can still worship God in Shankar's system. Uh, it is a problem. Because in Shankara, all concepts are illusions. I have a quote here, but I don't have time to find it, but just, it's there. All concepts, all ideas, all words, this is all illusion ultimately. What it means is that the Ishwara, or God, is ultimately ignorance. It's ultimately an illusion. So, uh, all, here's a quote. All conceptions about the absolute Brahman are the workings of Maya. Brahman's creative power which generates our thoughts and imaginings. Thus, when we apply these imaginings to Brahman, remember that? You apply Maya, all of our material ideas to Brahman, uh, is understood as God. So, personally, if I was a theist, I wouldn't be, like, really excited to worship a God who's actually a delusion and ignorance. I mean, that doesn't sound like really... That's not going to motivate me. So, Shankara calls this... Ishwara, the Lord. Ishwara presides over the world and is the object of religious devotion activities. How can an illusion, a distorting limitation, because here's a quote from Professor Rodriguez, any quality that one predicates upon Brahman is a distorting limitation. Any quality, where the, here it is. So God as a separate being, God that you can worship, God that rules the world, makes the world, that's Sakuna Brahma. And any attribute, any guna is a distorting limitation. So, this thing, like, no problem, you still get to worship God. You get to worship a distorting limitation, an ignorance, a delusion, something which you will go beyond once you're enlightened. That's not really the spirit of theism. Yes? 
in the book, it said that his like ideas still have like a role in Hinduism. Absolutely. So which I, which parts did they take from that? Thank you. Uh, it's very common in Hinduism to say something like, "It doesn't matter what you worship. It doesn't matter if you want to worship Krishna, Shiva, Devi, whatever, because ultimately none of these personal forms of God are real." Ultimately, it all dissolves, and there's just something else. And so, and we'll, that's going to talk all about that. I mean, it's a very good question. We'll get to neo-Hinduism, 19th century. We see the 19th and 20th century Hinduism that's going to become very, very, very prominent. It's always been. But there are people who resisted this. There are huge numbers of Hindus and philosophers that said, no, this is not fair. We don't, when we worship God, Krishna or Shiva or whatever, we're not worshiping a delusion. We're not worshiping a distorting limitation. We're not worshiping something that's going to get thrown in the dumpster eventually when we're enlightened. This is really God. And so this, uh, like, no problem, because you get Ishvara also. Yeah, it is a problem. And uh, so if I can just read this very quickly. Advaita Vedanta, Shankara, promotes the approach of negation, known as Nati Nati, not this, not that. This via negativa. Non-dualism is a standpoint that negates any plurality or duality. So you, as a soul, and God, as your Lord, that's a, that's a plurality. So that is negated. Ultimately, Shankar is going to negate this. You get to have your fun and you know, be religious for a while. But then when you're enlightened, that gets thrown out. Uh, and here's an example of a quote from a, a very well-known philosophy of India book. So far our experience goes, a spirit can act upon matter only through a body with organs of perception and movement. His activity is caused by some motive, such as attainment of pleasure, removal of pain. But God is said to be devoid of body, as well as passions and desires. Thus, we fail to understand the manner, as well as the motive of God's creation of the world. God doesn't create the world. Shankar says there's no creation. God doesn't create the world, because why would he do that? God has no feelings. God has no emotions. And how could God affect the world? Because he doesn't have a body, so how could God affect the world? So, to call this theism, I think, is, is, is really trying very hard. Uh, and ultimately, Wednesday, a very powerful philosopher arose in India, actually, in South India, Ramanuja, very, very famous. And he's the one who said, wait a second. And he wrote his own commentary on the Upanishads, the Vedanta Sutra, in which he defended theism and said that this is what the Vedas are really teaching. The Vedas are really teaching about an eternal personal God. And anyway, so he opposed Shankara, and that was, in a sense, that, that becomes a great debate in Indian religious history. Yes? Why was he so popular? Shankara? Uh, I think it's a question where he, that's a very good question. Uh, he was popular among intellectuals. If you study world religions, include, I mean, all of them, really, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, you'll find there is a trend in world religions, we can talk about it next time, among intellectuals to think that a personal conception of God is sort of like lightweight, pre-philosophical, it's for the religious peasantry, people that aren't really like serious thinkers. And when I mean, you become a serious thinker, you, you, you don't, you know, you realize that personal God is sort of like anthropomorphic, you know, childishness. Especially like people, they already, people who were, uh, there was a bhakti movement and went to the 
We'll talk about that, but it wasn't philosophically developed. Anyway, uh, thank you all very much, and we'll see you Wednesday. If you have more questions that you didn't get answered, please email me or something. Sorry, there's not more time.